Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Let me ask you, ever feel deep down in your heart that something is wrong at work? Like what you know or been fed as truth about the workplace, but, but the way you experience it and see it with your own eyes isn't true at all? Like, for example, we're told to, you know, strive for work-life balance or to become a more well-rounded leader or that, you know, we need to give our employees more feedback. Or how about this? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. But in reality, what we know intellectually to be true, but what our experiences are telling us, something just feels off. It feels fake. And so we feel disconnected from our real world. So how we think about work and talk about it and structure it simply doesn't work. In fact, they feel like lies we've been told. But how do we know what's true about work? Well, our guest today is Ashley Goodall, and he co-wrote the book on it, Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. Ashley has spent his career exploring large organizations from the inside. And so he looks for the lessons from the real world through data and research that help people and teams thrive and that make work a more human place for all the humans in it. Ashley is currently Vice President of Leadership and Team Intelligence at Cisco, and he's one of the world's foremost leadership experts on the cutting edge of the research and best practices. You're going to love this conversation where Ashley exposes the lies about work. So let's dive in. So welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Ashley Goodall, who co-wrote Nine Lies About Work. And the subtitle was A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. So Ashley, welcome to the Love and Action podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So as I always do, I start with uh, an icebreaker and kind of get our listeners to get to know you a little bit outside of your work. So what's making you smile when you get up in the morning these days, Ashley? Gosh, these days, and I think for my whole life, two things really. One is coffee which is just a true thing and not something I'm necessarily proud of, but the first cup of coffee is a special moment in the day. And then the other, I very often wake up with a piece of music in my life. I've been a lover of classical music for as long as I can remember. I played a lot when I was a kid. And on the good days, what puts a smile on my face is, is the earworm is going with some lovely piece of music. So those are my two. I love it. So let's dive into the book you co-wrote with uh, best-selling author Marcus Buckingham. Now, I love the provoking title, Nine Lies About Work. So as I read this, I, it actually blew me away because some of the things that I've been told personally since my 20s, really, about the way that we should work or lead others is actually not true. And now we have the data to, to back it up. So tell our listeners kind of on the, on the surface. We'll, we'll dig in a little deeper, but what are those, those nine lines? You want to unpack them for us? Well, I think there are a few themes that run through them, and maybe we, sh we could start there. One is that we've lost sight of individual human beings at work. Um, so much of what companies need or want is controllability and predictability, and it, 
it finishes up creating workplaces where we all feel like we're sort of meant to be cogs in a machine um, and it's all one size fits all and individuality is, is lost in that. Another of the themes is that sometimes what starts life as a small good idea then gets turned into a big bad idea. An example of that would be um, goals, for example, where if you or I set a goal for ourselves that expresses who we are and what we want to get done in the world, okay, that's a lovely thing. But as soon as somebody turns that into a cascaded goal-setting mechanism where everyone's got to set goals, there are a subset of the goals above them, and you, you finish up at the bottom of that chain being essentially told what your goals should be and told to set them by another person, all of a sudden, you're not, the human's gone. The human who said when setting a goal for himself or herself, here's what I value, in the corporate cascaded goal system, that, that person vanishes. So sometimes small good things turn into big bad things when we try and scale them and turn them into systems. And then maybe another thing of the book is that we seem to pay attention much more to what doesn't work in the world than what does work. We're sort of focused a lot on deficits and fixing things and making people well-rounded and trying to iron out the flaws. And again, that's another one where the human beings vanish because there aren't human beings who are perfect people. There are just human beings who are energized by what they do. So you have to actually lean in much more to what works in a person than what doesn't work, both for the person, because we all really care about where we make our biggest dent in the world, but also for companies who want the best out of people. Well, there it is. And the best doesn't come from fixing our shortcomings. Yeah, yeah. So before I jump into line number one, because that's where I wanted to start, let, let me first define the, who the audience is for this book. And you kind of, you talked about the free thinking leader. I mean, it's in your subtitle, which I think the majority of the listeners of the Love and Action podcast kind of fit into that mold. But what is a free thinking leader, according to you? Well, we're trying to write the book for an audience that says, look, I'm tired of the received wisdom of work. And I'm tired because what I see with my own eyes tells me that this isn't true. And I'm asked to accept a whole series of things on their face, um, but no one can provide much evidence. And I see in front of me, I see teams, I see human beings. Um, I know that the world is is spiky, that people are good at different things. I know that teams are worthy of my attention as a team leader. I reject dogma. I understand the world isn't a perfect place, but a way to engage with it intelligently is to start by recognizing that it isn't a perfect place and then seeing where I can find my role in that. So if you like, that's, that's the sort of person we're writing for. And, and we think that free-thinking leaders the world over will pick up this book and say, all right, this helps me put some frame around some things I've always known inside myself to be true. I would put myself in that mold because I think you really spoke to my heart when I was going through that, especially line number one, which is, let, let's talk about that right now. People, line number one, people care which company they work for. The data says otherwise. Well, people care about what company they join, right? But then once they're in it, and they go through the ups and downs of doing the work and dealing with politics and gossip and all that, how long they stay and how productive they are depends on something entirely different. What is that? Well, it ultimately depends what team they're on, which is what's the experience of work every day. And we talk as though uh, companies are things. And to a certain extent, they are. I mean, they have a stock price and they have buildings and they have financial reports and they have so, so there are many things which companies have. 
But when you come from the outside to a company to, to working inside of a company, of course, you only see, especially if it's a large company like Cisco, you only see a tiny proportion of it. Cisco has 72,000 people in it. I don't know them all. I don't know what they're all like. Um, I never will. So, in fact, when you join any large group, once you step across the threshold, if you like, your experience is always a local experience, which is not to say the company doesn't exist. But when the company says, I don't know, we'll pick some hypotheticals. When the company says we need to have a culture of innovation, which lots of companies say, um, I think the reaction on the ground, certainly for a free-thinking leader, if you like, is, okay, innovation is important here. But my experience didn't change when companies said, we have this aspiration. Um, my experience is, is my team innovative? Does my team value innovation? Does my team leader value innovation? Do the people around me pull on me and ask me to come up with new ideas? If it doesn't live in the team, it doesn't live anywhere. And so what we're arguing in the book is not that it's not that culture is not something for us to think about because it does create stories of why a company is one thing and not the other. And it, it's certainly connected to purpose, which is very important. But the experience on a team always trumps the experience on the company. Hmm. Uh, the team is like right here in your face and you can't peer around it, see the company, however hard you try, because it's right there. And you know, culture isn't, if you say to a team leader, well, we have a culture of innovation or we need one. Yeah. The team leader will say, well, what do I do? How do I, what, what does that mean? How do I need to do something? Whereas if you say to a team leader, you have eight human beings on your team, each of whom will be most creative when you figure out what floats them, what lights their fire, the team leader can do something about that. So it's a, there's a bit of research behind it. Uh, there's an observation about what matters to us most at work. And actually, happily, it also leads you to a very practical prescription for how to think about work in a way that we can all act on as leaders. Yeah. Talk about that turnover data, even at Cisco, that when the employee experience around teams goes south, what did you find? Yeah. So we found that if you move from a team that's in the top half of our teams in terms of team experience to the bottom half, your chance of deciding to leave increases by about 45%. Now, just to go back to the lie and the truth again, so yeah. if it were true that we cared which company we work for, well, all of those people work for the same company. The ones in the highly engaged teams and the ones in the not engaged teams, they all work at Cisco. So you would expect that they would all leave at about the same rate. Right. So the point is, no, 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 no. If you look through the lens of team, if you look through the lens of team experience, you find it explains what people choose to leave, and they're not leaving Cisco. They're leaving their team at Cisco. And conversely, of course, the ones who stay and prosper and grow and thrive with us are staying in their team at Cisco. And it's that we're just trying to get the world to refocus and go, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to get teams right. We've got to get teams right. You can't get work right if you can't get teams right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this one, I had a hard time getting around and it's about culture and, uh, you know, people hammer this uh, quote that a lot, a lot of people attribute it to Peter Drucker, right? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. But I found you to be very critical of, of culture. You call the ideas behind the company culture as, and I quote, a shared fiction and that it's culture is only designed to attract a certain type of person to join your company. 
But isn't the strength of culture found in these elements of great teams that you define in your book? Or are we talking about apples and oranges here? Well, I think it's a little bit apples and oranges. I think the question is, what does eat strategy for breakfast? Okay. And I think you could turn around and say, great teams eat strategy for breakfast. I think that's an interesting an interesting sort of development of a quote. I'll tell you what we, you know, at Cisco sort of three, three and a half years ago, we came to a realization and, and made a big statement that if we don't get our teams right, we can't succeed as a business. Yeah. Um, I think that probably means that teams eat strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and, you know, the point we're trying to make about culture is that it is a little abstract and distant. And if we are trying to improve the experience of work for people around the world, we need to understand where that experience lives. And it doesn't live in company Mm. because that's too broad, too amorphous, too, as I said, distant. It really does live in team. So, you know, companies like to talk and should talk about what they're for and what matters to them and where they want to go and what the mission is. All of those things need to be super important. But if you do that and stop and you don't focus like a laser on what's the experience inside each of our thousands of teams, if you're the size of Cisco, then you miss. That's Mm. what we're saying. Mm. Okay. So... Listeners, if next time you're job interviewing and you're looking for a great company culture, don't bother asking whether if it has a great culture. Ashley is advising that people ask the company, does the company, what does the company do basically to build great teams? Is that right? And the answers to that question, I think, would give a lot of us pause. Mm-hmm. Because what we're essentially saying is you maybe you're getting through your interviews with a company and they say, you know, as by law, two-thirds of the way through a job interview, the interviewer has to say, do you have any questions? You, you know, that that's actually federal legislation on turning the job interview around. I'm being ironic here. And if you turn around and say, yeah, I'm not actually looking to join your company. I'm looking to join a team at your company. Can you tell me what you've done to make that experience one which I will thrive in? I don't know how many companies would have a really good answer to that. I think some would be able to say, look, we send all of our managers off every three years for leadership training, and and we sort of hope that some of it sticks and hope that some of it shows up in their actual leadership of a team. Some might say we try and select our team leaders really carefully. I don't know whether many would say, yes, we measure the experience on each team four times a year so that we can see what the team experience is like and whether it's improving. I don't know whether many would say, well, yes, we've got a technology that allows team leaders to see the strengths and loves and loads and priorities of each team member every week so that they can have more focused conversations with them. There's a lot of scope to really lean into the world of teams and help team leaders build great teams. And I think it's a really interesting question for somebody to ask of a company on the way in because it will tell you a lot about whether they thought hard about where the experience of the company actually lives. Hmm. So lie number five also took me by surprise. And so here it is. People need feedback. This is a lie. So what your research found is that what we think will benefit employees when you give frequent, candid, and critical feedback, you're actually impairing learning and performance. 
So if you're a team leader, that's not the best approach to help a, a person excel. So what is? Well, and let's just unpack the lie a little bit, shall we? The interesting word there is need. Whose needs are we talking about? Now, I think we've all grown up being told that those other people, those other people over there, they need feedback because they're blundering around in a fog of confusion. And unless we tell them, unless we give them the feedback they need, they're never going to figure it out, are they? So they need to be told. There is a lot about the world of work which presumes that each of us is wise and all the rest of us are less than wise. And that characterizes not only feedback, but ratings and rating people on potential and goal setting. We have to tell those people what to do because the poor sods won't figure it out otherwise. So we'll, we'll have a goal setting system. So I think people need feedback actually comes from fear. It comes from if people might not do the job and we, the leaders, might fail because our teams will have failed. So we have to tell them the feedback, whether they like it or not. But actually, when you look at what people do need and how brains actually grow, because isn't the point of all of this to help people get better? Aren't we talking about growth and development here? You find out that feedback does the opposite, that when you give somebody... When somebody feels that you are about to judge them, their brain, if you like, leaves the conversation. And there's some very interesting neuroscience in this, in the book. And because the brain has left the conversation, it's no longer around to do any learning. So we've got to find a way of talking to people about work that allows their brain to remain (laughs) present and learn. And people learn best when you give them attention to what worked. People learn best when you share your reaction to what went brilliantly well. When people feel that they're not about to be judged, but you're just going to stay on your side of the conversation and say, look, I don't know whether this is, any of this is true about you, but here's my reaction. That's not a judgment because it's now safely in me, and you're welcome to go, that was an interesting reaction, that was a boring reaction, that was a surprising reaction, that was a reaction I care about, that was a reaction I don't care about. It leaves the agency on your side of the conversation. And then you can take it a step further. And if you do something and I say to you, um, oh my goodness, that was fantastic. It made me feel, it made me think very differently about what you were talking about. What was going through your mind? Now there I'm giving you my reaction and then asking you to lean in to what you just did and helping you uncover it. The point of which is so that you can do it again because Mm -hmm. that's what development looks like. Doing more of the stuff that you do well more. And so what people need in order to grow is not feedback. People need attention and moreover attention to what they do best. That certainly is what the evidence is telling us. And that certainly is what worries me, given the uh, preponderance of conversation right now about giving people critical feedback or candid feedback or unvarnished feedback. Um, We seem to have persuaded ourselves that the better leaders are tougher leaders And tough means essentially judging people. And there's no evidence in the world that that is helping anybody perform better. Hmm. Let's talk about the last lie. That is, leadership is a thing. Let's unpack that. What's the lie behind leadership? I think you start by saying, what is the thing that we think is leadership? The best way to think of it, I suppose, is lists. We like to write lists, don't we? So we'll say, well, uh, there are characteristics that leaders have. 
and we could call this set of characteristics leadership. And somewhere on the list is usually, uh, let me see, we've got strategic thinking. That's always up there. We've got execution. We've got uh, political savvy. We've got executive presence. We've got maybe oratory. We've got learning agility. We like to put on the list. Change management is there. Uh, and then there are some other sort of more emotional ones, if you like. We like our leaders to be authentic. So authenticity is a big deal. And vulnerability is important. Although you find out that sooner or later, the leader says authentically and vulnerably, I have no idea what to do next. And everyone goes, oh, hang on, you're not allowed to say that because we want you to be just the right amount of authentic or just the right amount of vulnerable, but not so we think that you can't do your job. So we like to come up with the lists and then we go, if you want to be a leader, you got to have the stuff on the lists because if you want leadership, that's what it is, which is fine until you look at any accomplished leader in the real world. Yeah. And it, you don't have to look at very many. And you ask yourself the question, do these people have the things on the list? And you find exception after exception after exception. You find, I don't know, we, we did a sort of historical tour of leadership in, in the book, but you find that someone like, say, Churchill was exiled from government for two decades because his strategic planning skills were so awful. And no one would say Churchill isn't a leader. He's just a leader who sucked at strategic planning. You look at, I don't know, Steve Jobs is the example everyone likes to go to, who used to avoid registering a car ever by simply buying a new one every six months so he wouldn't get ticketed if he parked in a handicapped spot. And you say, well, was Steve Jobs a leader? Yes. Was Steve Jobs ethical? It's, it's sort of hard to make the case, at least given, given that example. So what happens is you take a list of things, you look at real leaders in the real world, and you go, well... They don't have the things on the, some of them have got some of the things on the list, but none of them have all of the things on the list. What does that mean? If the leadership things are optional, if they're optional, what good is the list? Then what you have to say is there is, in fact, only one thing that leaders have in common, and it's not a listy thing. The thing that leaders have in common is they all have followers. Uh, if you don't have followers, you're really not a leader. If anyone wants to answer the question, am I a leader? Look behind you. If there's anyone there, yes. If not, no. It's a very simple test. But what that means is we need to understand leadership through the experience of the followers. Leadership isn't about leaders. It's about followers. It's the follower experience game that we're in. And the real question is, what do we hook on to in another human being? What is it and why? What pulls us towards uh, somebody? What causes us to put this person to the front of the queue, if you like? What causes us to give our efforts to another carbon-based life form wandering around on planet Earth? It's a fascinating question. <laughs> what seems to be going on is that we humans are fearful of the future, slightly. Mm. It's the great uncertainty for all of us. We're not quite sure what it will bring. And when we find somebody who lessens a little bit our uncertainty of the future, that's worth a lot to us. And so it's a trade. I'll follow you if you make me feel a little bit more confident in the future. And what seems to make me confident is when I look at you and go, oh, my God, you're really good at something I care about. You're really good at something I care about. You are super spiky in one particular thing. And in my world, that matters. Mm. I look at you and I've got, I go, you've taken yourself more seriously. You've seen around more corners than I have. You're predictable because I know which way you're going to go. You are authentically authentic, not fakely authentic. 
because you know who you are and you're a serious person. You put those things together and that's worth us giving a little bit more effort for that person because when we are following them, we know a little bit more about the future. That seems to be the essence of this whole conversation. It's not about leadership. It's about leaders with followers and what we follow as spikes. We follow people who are really good at something we care about. Mm. Love it. Love it. So as far as the nine lives, you know, sometimes authors, they lean toward one or the other, or there's a part of the book that really speaks to them as a person. Did any of those nine lives kind of just, does it flow to the top for you where you say, uh, you know what, this one is just matters a little more than the others? Not really. Something else happened. Okay. What was a magical experience about writing this? And we wrote, we did most of the writing on this. We both have full-time jobs. So it was fairly intense. We did most of the writing in about six months. And we wrote it. We started at the beginning and we wrote until we got to the end. We weren't like jumping in and out. So it was a, a sub sequential approach. And what was magical was that as each chapter built on the one before, the book became not just a book about work and not just a book about business, but I think, and I hope, ultimately a book about life. Mm-hmm. And and when I read it, certainly, I find that the last two chapters in particular broaden out and, and start asking us questions about what is life like? What matters to us? What are the things that work or no work we should hold most dear And how can we all make our world every day a little bit better than it was when we woke up in the morning? That's what I love most about it, that it finds its way into, I think, a much broader and beautiful conversation. Mm. So I want to bring this conversation full circle, at least the book's idea full circle, by going back to something you said in the introduction. And you talk about how companies take hold of these, these lies because it satisfies their need for control. And I would even imply also their need to control people who contribute to the work they're doing. But you and Marcus frame your argument against the nine lines like this. And I'm going to quote from the introduction, the strongest force pushing back against these lies and the force that we all seek to harness in our lives is the power of our own individuality that the true power of human nature is that each human's nature is unique and that expressing this through our work is an act ultimately of love. That is so poetic to me. So why does love matter in this sense and bring us full circle? It's really interesting to say, if we talked about love at work, what could we possibly mean? Of course, as soon as I say that, and I say this in, in speeches, and people will go, well, hang on, hang on. I thought this was a businessy thing. You're not going all soft and smushy on us, are you? What are you doing talking about love? Love is for weekends. <laughs> Goodness me. Work, weeks are for work. But you, you look at, okay, what is a person like when they're in love? What is love like? Love is a flame glowing on the inside and radiating out. Yes, love is anticipation. Love is looking forward to things. Love is running towards, not running away from. Love as time flies by. It is sad that we have not yet said that those things are proper or useful or welcome in the world of work. Mm. Because we spend most of our lives at work. You know, there's sleep, there's work, and then there's sleep, and then there's, there's sort of leftover on a Saturday afternoon. 
And it follows that expressing those things, expressing the things that we are like when we love something, uh, it is a manifestation of love. It follows that understanding that others are different from us and that they have flaws and they have brilliant highlights and spikes and seeing that and going, I accept all of that is also an act of love. Love is, if you like, love is probably the, the most ideal state of human relationship. And there's a lot of love at work. We just have worse names for it. And so what we're arguing is that whether you feel that, you know, you wished we would talk less about love, which I disagree with, but um, whether you feel the word makes you uncomfortable or not, the set of characteristics of who you are, what you have to contribute, and how you acknowledge other people around you, those are the characteristics that we need to build more of or we need to allow to flourish, if you like. Yes, as you say, to bring us full circle, the motive for writing Nine Lives About Work is that we've built a lot of stuff at work that gets directly in the way of that, which seems to be a bit of a shame. Mm. Well, I usually end by asking about what's tugging at your heart right now that you'd like our listeners to know. I don't know if you can top that, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, what's tugging at my heart actually just connects to that. Yeah. I would love this to be a moment for all of us where we can reset our conversation on what it means to work, what work is for, and how, how we can create more rich experiences for people when they go to work every day. If you look at the data on engagement globally, something like 20% of people are fully engaged. 80% of us are not. Work isn't great for lots of people at work. And that's very saddening if you're somebody like me who has seen what it can be and knows a little bit more about how we could get there. So what tugs at my heartstrings is, goodness me, I hope that many of us around the world can commit to do our part to advance the cause of love at work, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Ashley, is there any question that I should have asked but didn't? Sometimes you get, you know, a list of uh, your typical questions, but there's always one that you wish that was asked. Is there one? I'm not sure, actually. I think we covered a lot of ground. I'm going to pass on that one. Perfect. All right. So that brings me to the way that uh, we end our Love in Action podcast is your way. So bring this conversation to an end how you'd like it to bring it to do that. So what's that one thing you would like people to absolutely walk away from that may make a difference in their lives? I think the thing I would say is this. Many of us voyage through the world of work thinking to ourselves, hmm, that struck me as a little odd. I wonder why we do that. That struck me as not particularly helpful. I wonder why we do that. That struck me as more bureaucratic than helpful, than useful to me as a leader. I wonder why we do that. My wish for everybody listening would be pay attention to those little voices. They're not wrong. Mm. The book is called Nine Lies About Work by Ashley Goodall and Marcus Buckingham. So if people want to connect with you or learn more about uh, the book, how do they do that? So a few places. We have a website out there called the Freethinking Leader Coalition, which you can get to at freethinkingleader.org. You can find each of us on LinkedIn. 
And uh, you can also find me at ashleygoodall.com. But if you want to find a whole bunch of people talking about all of these ideas, then the place to go is Freethinking Leader Coalition, freethinkingleader.org. Perfect. I've had a proverbial blast talking to you, and I know I'm going to listen to this a few times just to grab all of the good stuff that may be hidden. But uh, it's been an honor and uh, really appreciate talking to you, and I wish you the best. I know you're in San Francisco now, and you're probably flying somewhere as soon as we're off the phone. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to talk, and I hope you listeners find this a useful session. Stick around. When I come back, I have three takeaways to drive this conversation home and an important final thought, which I'll share after this short message. There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club. Change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old-school command-and-control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with the growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here. What a great conversation with Ashley Goodall. I mean, I had so many takeaways. It was hard to just come up with three. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to combine a bunch of takeaways into my first one. And then I'll have a second one about why love matters. This was a deep and wide conversation. So regarding lie number five in Ashley's book, I want to touch on this. And that lie is people need feedback. So where does that lie come from? Well, he says it's fear. There's this fear that people might not do the job and we as leaders might fail because, well, because our teams will have failed us. So we think we have to force this feedback on them, whether they like it or not. We find this in these obsolete annual performance reviews that so many companies, thank goodness, are finally getting rid of. So what people actually do need for their growth and development, well, feedback does the opposite. Ashley says when someone feels like they're about to be judged of something, their brains leave the conversation. And if the brain has left the conversation, it's no longer around to do any learning. So we got to find ways to talk to people about work in a way that keeps them present and engaged to learning. So Ashley says, people learn best when you give them attention to what worked. People learn best when we share our reactions to what went brilliantly well. So if you do something at work and I say to you, wow, that was really great work. My reaction as a leader allows that other person to lean in to what they did. So now they're open to hearing you uncover what they did. And the point of this type of feedback is so they can do it again. It reinforces that behavior that led to something great. And that's what professional development looks like, says Ashley, doing more of the stuff that you do well more. So here's the clincher. What people need more in order to grow is not feedback, and especially not negative feedback. What they need is being able to receive positive attention and attention to what they do best. So my last takeaway is about why love matters. And I posed that question to Ashley. And 
Interestingly, he got very pensive and took a few seconds to think over this question. And then he said that it's, you know, it's quite sad that we haven't accepted that the things related to love in the workplace are actually proper and welcome and or even useful in the world of work. When we understand that others are different from us and we see people's brilliance as well as their flaws and accept all of that, accept that they're human, this is an act of love. He said, love is the most ideal state of human relationship. And there's a lot of love at work. We just have worse names for it. (laughs) And here's my choice for a tweetable quote. There were a lot of great quotes, but this is what I would tweet out, which you can find in the show notes of this episode. And Ashley said, the set of characteristics of who you are, what you have to contribute and how you acknowledge other people around you, those are the characteristics that we need to build more of and allow to flourish. Boom. So I want to thank Ashley Goodall for such a captivating conversation. I mean, some of the things he said just simply blew me away. If you want the show notes to this episode, go to marcelschwantes.com and click on the Love in Action podcast tab. And if you'd like to comment, on this podcast and join the conversation, find me on LinkedIn where I'll be posting about it. You can reply there and let me know what struck you, what really resonated with you. Lastly, I want to thank you, our listeners. You're the one that carries the torch forward. I mean, I believe in love and action. I believe in this message. It's my mission. It's why I do what I do, but I cannot do it without you, the love and action nation that's spreading this movement forward. On behalf of my team at One Stone Creative, check them out if you're looking to put out your own podcast. I'm Marcel Schwantes. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.